Welcome to Cybercast. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Today, we're going to hear about medical device security and how the FDA is approaching medical device security risks, especially following the SolarWinds software supply chain hack and the uptick in ransomware activity during the COVID-19 pandemic. Before the SolarWinds hack, the FDA knew software supply chains posed enormous cybersecurity risks. Medical devices are especially susceptible to software supply chain hacks, says Jessica Wilgerson, cyber policy advisor at the FDA. The first global incident to impact the healthcare sector and those software supply chains was the 2017 WannaCry ransomware attack, after which the FDA really drilled down on best cybersecurity practices for medical devices. Software supply chain, software bill of materials is something that FDA has been working on for, I think, almost four years now. So really starting in, in 2017 with the WannaCry ransomware outbreak that happened because that was sort of one of the first global incidents that really had an impact on the healthcare sector where you could really see the value of software supply chain. If, if everyone had known which of their devices was vulnerable to WannaCry, the, you know, it's very likely that we could have uh, had a little bit more of a targeted response rather than sort of the situation as it played out. The WannaCry lesson learned, if we want to call it that, was quickly followed by uh, several expert recommendations on software supply chain and how important it was. And so, again, I had mentioned earlier the Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity Task Force report, which is just an amazing report overall, but it does really focus on software bill of materials. Shortly following that report, there was actually congressional interest. The House Committee on Energy and Commerce actually wrote a letter to HHS requesting that HHS figure out a way to start deploying SBOMs in the healthcare sector. So this is something that's been around for a long time. FEA has taken a leadership role in not only medical device software supply chain security, but healthcare cybersecurity, supply chain cybersecurity overall. And that's we've done that partially through the NTIA multi-stakeholder process, where they are looking at software supply chain transparency. They've been working for two years now, both government representatives, industry representatives, on sort of deep diving into SBOM, figuring out what the best practices are, what the tools are, how do you use them, how do you share them, all of these kinds of questions. And FDA participated in that process and has been keeping up with it. So, we have been very clear that we think it's important. We've been very clear on supporting industry-led efforts to develop the tools, strategies, and standards, and so on and so forth. And we're just going to continue to be very clear that because of cybersecurity threats, because of the fact that software supply chain has just been shown to be so critical in understanding um, cybersecurity threats and so on, that uh, you know, this is something that we're going to expect manufacturers to have an understanding of and have an ability to respond to uh, appropriately. The SolarWinds hack highlighted vulnerabilities in software supply chains. The FDA is now working hard to release new guidance on how to protect the software supply chains of medical devices. Another big one, uh, and this has come up with SolarWinds and other things like that, is supply chain security. So for us, specifically looking at software supply chain, this has been something that FDA has been focused on for several years, really sort of starting with WannaCry back in 2017, and then continuing on from there with, with the other work. So 
if you look at the 2018 draft guidance, it includes something called Cybersecurity Bill of Materials. The 2021 version is going to talk about software bill of materials because that is sort of the industry accepted term for software supply chain efforts. But that is an, another thing from the guidance that I can highlight is, is how important we believe software supply chain is and um, software bill of materials. Cybersecurity is a fast evolving discipline. It's not something that can stay static. You can't declare the best practices at one time and then be done. And so the cybersecurity guidance really looks to uh, incorporate that fact that cybersecurity is going to grow and change and the risks that are faced by medical devices and such aren't going to be the same for day to day. So, you know, helping us provide guidance to industry as to how to keep up with those threats is, is a huge theme. The big thing to remember about this cybersecurity guidance and FTA and even the broader sectors work on cybersecurity overall. If you look at efforts that predated the pandemic, healthcare cybersecurity and medical device cybersecurity really came to the forefront in a, in a lot of ways around the 2014 timeframe when that first cybersecurity guidance came out. It was just the time when a lot of attention was getting focused on it because of research that was being done and so on. And what that has meant is that between FDA efforts, HHS efforts, other government efforts, and then public-private partnerships like the Healthcare Sector Coordinating Council, the Healthcare Information Sharing and Analysis Center, a lot of good cybersecurity best practice development, evaluation, response activities, they already existed before the pandemic hit. And so we actually were in you know, the very good position of, of being relatively well prepared. You know, I, I won't say that there you know, weren't things that we needed to ramp up and, and things that we found that we needed to address when the pandemic hit. But we were relatively well prepared because of existing work like the Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity Task Force Report, because of documents coming out of the Healthcare Sector Coordinating Council, and because of the experts that have put in the time and effort over the years to address these kinds of issues to really ramp up as, as the pandemic hit and cybersecurity concerns were really starting to grow. The dramatic increase in cyber attacks on health organizations and the increasing interconnectedness of medical devices over the last few years means manufacturers must maintain constant vigilance. Wilkerson says bolting on security measures at the end of the development process is no longer enough. We expect manufacturers to build in cybersecurity from the design and development stage onward. We're very clear. I think if you look at presentations I've given, my colleague Matt Hazlett has given, Dr. Schwartz has given, we say very clearly bolting on cybersecurity to medical devices is insufficient. This is something that we've known for a long time and something that the information technology sector learned the hard way and continues to learn. And so it's, it's something that in medical devices, especially given some of the additional patient safety concerns, you know, it's just, it's the expectation. It's what we review for when devices come in to the FDA that cybersecurity needs to be built in. The controls need to be appropriate. They need to scale with the risk. And so, you know, given that manufacturers are in the best position to understand their devices and the risks that those devices face, you know, we are expecting manufacturers to come in able to justify you know, what cybersecurity controls are in place. And not only that, the other thing that I would mention is the ability to keep those cybersecurity controls updated over time, since, you know, we do expect these devices are going to be in use for quite a while. 
and the cybersecurity threats that those devices are therefore going to be facing are going to change over time. And so manufacturers not only need to be building in security at, you know, if we call it time zero, but they need to be able to continue addressing cybersecurity throughout the device's total life cycle. We, the FDA, would primarily look to industry initiatives uh, that are already taking place. So FDA tends not to provide specific requirements that industry must meet. Uh, this varies depending on topic area, but especially in cybersecurity, we provide guidance more so than specific requirements. And I think with respect to software supply chain security, what we would say and what we would look to is the, um, the best practices, the tooling, the formats and other things that are coming out of that NTIA multi-stakeholder process. Because that has essentially been a consensus process that industry, including the healthcare sector, there's in fact a proof of concept specifically for healthcare that has been under that NTA process involving hospitals and medical device manufacturers working together to produce and exchange SBOMs for exactly this kind of purpose of, you know, what, what are we going to use these for? How are we going to use them? to prevent and respond to cybersecurity vulnerabilities. So on the what would FDA recommend side, I think we are going to continue looking towards uh, the NCAA process and what it's produced and um, generally uh, have industry look there since those are seem to be the consensus. Keeping medical devices safe is a huge job, but the FDA has help. Wilkerson says the FDA has a very close relationship with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. As technological advancements in the Internet and now the Internet of Things have exploded over the last few years, CISA and the FDA are working together closer than ever to combat these new cyber risks. We have a very close working relationship with CISA and have for quite a while. That memorandum of understanding that I mentioned before, that was signed in 2018. And even prior to that official uh, agreement being signed, it didn't exist at that time, but DHS, DHS, and FDA have worked very closely together. There is a recognition in a lot of ways that um, like all parts of the federal government, FDA and DHS have um, you know certain pieces of the statutory puzzles. So FDA is statutorily responsible for assuring safety and effectiveness in medical devices. CISA, and as part of DHS, is responsible for just responding to um, critical infrastructure and cybersecurity risks across the board. And so what has developed over the years with CISA is this very, I hate using these kinds of buzzwords, but synergistic uh, partnership where, you know, CISA has just a wealth of uh, specific cybersecurity expertise. They have a wealth of knowing how to respond to vulnerabilities, of working with parties to make sure that patches are being developed, that mitigations are available, that communications are going out. And um, FDA certainly has that as well on, on our end. But what uh, FDA also brings to the table and is critically important in this partnership is we bring in the medical device and the patient safety perspective. CISA, uh, you know, they're, they're not medical device experts. They're not doctors. They're not medical device manufacturers. We are able to bring that perspective to bear when we do have medical device vulnerabilities so that when um, CISA is approaching us and saying, you know, we've, we've found out about this vulnerability, we can look at our own, um, our own systems, our own information in terms of medical devices and determine this vulnerability could have a patient impact of X. This could lead to a patient impact of Y. 
And that allows us to provide information back to CISA that helps them appropriately tailor what their communications might be, what their recommendations might be, and so on. And it also helps FDA and DHS CISA stay in lockstep. So usually when communications are going out on medical device vulnerabilities, sometimes I think the most recent one was probably Swentooth back in March of 2020. You know, those ones are completely collaborative in that FDA and DHS work together on the wording of the advisory and things like that. For some of the more day-to-day vulnerabilities, DHS and CISA provide the opportunity for FDA to review advisories before they go out when they involve medical devices to ensure that, uh, you know, we don't see potential patient safety impacts for the devices that might exist, you know, if we, if we don't think the, the mitigations properly address them. So it's that balance of the different types of expertise that FDA and CISA can both bring to medical device vulnerability disclosures that really help us address as quickly and effectively as possible potential patient safety concerns. We will respond and work with DHS as a, however is most appropriate to make sure we're responding as quickly and effectively as we can. So, if, you know, if, if that means we're on endless numbers of phone calls, then we'll be on endless numbers of phone calls. If it means we're in meetings all day, we'll be in meetings all day. When the FDA learned of a Bluetooth vulnerability, they immediately reached out to CISA to develop a strategy to address the vulnerability and how it could impact medical devices. This was a Bluetooth low energy vulnerability that was disclosed. Off the top of my head, I cannot remember when it was officially publicly disclosed, but it was brought to FDA's attention at the end of February 2020 into the beginning of March 2020. And the concern with the Swentooth set of vulnerabilities, and you can look on our website, FDA's website, we actually put out what's known as a safety communication, which is just an official communication from FDA to the healthcare sector, to the patient community and caregiver community, that there are serious concerns, you know, with a product or with a set of products. The Swentooth vulnerability could have, we have no known um, confirmation of, of, any, of any impacts, but it could have allowed for crashing a medical device that used Bluetooth low energy that was vulnerable to this, deadlocking it, potentially bypassing security settings. And so when we were made aware of this set of vulnerabilities, uh, it obviously was a, was a huge concern for us. You know, you don't want people's medical devices being crashed or deadlocked or the security features being bypassed. And so we immediately informed CISA and began working with them and potentially impacted manufacturers, as well as the the researchers who'd originally discovered the vulnerabilities, to figure out what to do. And so that was a very busy couple of weeks as we worked with all of the different parties, CISA being one of those parties, one of our main partners. And we, you know, just sort of went through what the potential impacts of the vulnerability could be. We looked at the potential devices that could be impacted. And then taking all of that information we, uh, CISA put out an advisory, FDA put out a safety communication, and we worked directly with different manufacturers and the researchers to uh, provide the best information that we could and the best recommendations that we could in terms of how to ensure patients were as protected as possible. Bad actors can infiltrate medical devices through software updates and poor design, but they can also exploit vulnerable devices that haven't been updated. Issuing patches for vulnerabilities in medical devices can be an easy fix. 
manufacturers that stay on top of their software updates may not encounter too many cyber risks. The real problem, Wilkerson says, are legacy medical devices that may be unpatchable. It tends to be more of a legacy device problem than it does anything else. If you look at the healthcare sector overall, it is a sector that holds on to devices for a very long time. And so, and it, it makes sense, right? If, you, if you're going to buy a half million dollar piece of equipment, like an MRI, you're not going to be replacing that thing every two years like it's an iPhone. For one thing, those things sometimes get, the building gets built around the MRI in some cases. And no one wants to knock a wall down to replace an MRI, you know, because of a cybersecurity vulnerability. The problem with that is if you've got a, a 10, 20, 30-year-old machine back in the halcyon days of whenever it was, you know, maybe cybersecurity wasn't as big of a concern. Maybe people thought that somehow healthcare um, wasn't going to be a target or it just wasn't relevant to protect medical devices from cybersecurity threats. We know better today, but that doesn't change the fact that the devices, when they were designed, were not designed to be updatable. They were not designed to be patched. And I think the, the other thing that we see sometimes is um, the speed and the capability with which something can be patched. So, you know, most folks are, are used to, to dealing with phone updates where you, you tap a few buttons and the download comes over the air, it gets applied, it's, it's very smooth and easy, generally speaking. Nobody has to go find, you know, get sent an update on a USB and then plug the USB in and, and do a bunch of things. So it's concerns like that of, of one, does the updatability even exist? Two, what does the updatability involve? Is it something like a, uh, an over-the-air update or does it require something like a USB? Three, things like, you know, how much downtime does it require? How long is this device going to be offline while this thing is updated? And so it's all of these concerns. And I would say, uh, you know, based on their own evolution, even the way that cybersecurity as a discipline has evolved, and certainly FDA attention on updatability and patchability, there is an expectation now that devices will be updatable and they will be patchable. So it's, it's, but we're running a little bit in parallel. We're, we're working with the devices that can be updated and patched while also trying to appropriately handle devices that can't be. Where we, we really start to have problems is when devices can't be updated when they can't be protected. With a device, if it's protected today and then a new exploit comes out, but you can't update it, you can't patch it, then that's a huge problem. And so we think, and, and you can see this through a lot of the things that FDA talks about, we really focus on for, especially for our devices coming onto the market today, devices need to be patchable. They need to be updatable because cybersecurity threats are unpredictable, you know, trying to somehow Buying a medical device that's going to be protected from all cybersecurity threats forever is just not feasible. And so for us, it's the really critical element is being patchable and being updatable so that cybersecurity threats can be addressed quickly and all of that. That's one of the concerns that we have of why legacy devices are so problematic is because in a lot of cases, they can't be updated and they can't be patched. So when cybersecurity vulnerabilities are arising, even if in a device that could be patched, the exploit would be low risk or could at least be addressed quickly, you know, these vulnerabilities can become more severe just because they cannot be protected against in reasonable times or with reasonable effort. So FDA has recognized this for a long time. This was another finding, another major finding that came out of the Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity Task Force Report. I believe it's recommendation 2.1. 
but looking at legacy devices and, and the problems that they pose, not just for devices, but for the entire healthcare sector, is something that FDA has looked at. One of the reasons the FDA hired Wilkerson was to co-lead a task force looking at legacy medical device concerns and risks. She's working with the FDA and the Health Sector Coordinating Council to come up with recommendations and guidance for securing these types of devices. They plan to release a report on their findings later this year. The legacy report, in a lot of ways, is is supposed to be pretty all-encompassing because one of the things that the legacy group, and and this group, just for a little bit of background, it's underneath the the Healthcare Sector Council, which is is an official public-private partnership set up in, uh, it might be an executive order, but anyway, it's, it's sort of officially blessed by the U.S. government. I'm one of the co-leads from FDA, and then I have a co-lead from a hospital, and I have a co-lead from a medical device manufacturer. And there are about between, I think, 50 to 60 industry and government representatives from hospitals, medical device manufacturers, cybersecurity consultants that have participated and lent their expertise and their perspective to this report. And so one of the things that this group recognized very early on is that while everyone, if you mention the legacy device problem, everybody sort of nods sagely and understands what you're talking about, it's actually very difficult to find a single resource or a single really reliable resource that kind of digs into it and lays it out and summarizes it and all these things. And so the report, in addition to being um, this repository of best practices and recommendations, it also is intending to describe the problem, not only for practitioners, but for policymakers, for C-suite executives and so on. And so folks who might not be, you know, boots on the ground in addressing the legacy problem, but who need to understand what it is so that they can tell the boots on the ground to go forward so that they can understand why it's important. So it's the, the report is partially meant to address that. I think I mentioned the terminology, Uh, you know, if you are familiar with legacy device issues, all of these different terms get thrown around, end of life, end of support, end of useful life, end of marketed life. And some uh, manufacturers and hospitals will use them in different ways, which can lead to confusion and, and such. And so, you know, we're also looking to have a terminology section. And so in total, what we want this to be is the, a really firm foundation in the start of a conversation of um, what is the legacy device problem, what do we think we should do about it, and then you know, really set us up well in the coming years to really uh, sort of buckle down and get to addressing this as best that we can. In the meantime, Wilkerson is working hard to change how the healthcare sector views cybersecurity. It's not optional. It's not a separate discipline. It's not the IT department's job. It's everyone's responsibility. It's integral to patient safety. Cybersecurity is is safety. And so this is something that's really key to FDA of uh, recognizing the fact that, um, well, sometimes cybersecurity can be seen as its own discipline or its own um, whatever it may be in an organization, something that, that exists separate from the other things that the organization is working on. For us, and we think generally overall with the way that the internet has evolved, Cybersecurity is a patient safety issue. You can't separate cybersecurity from safety. And therefore, if you do not have a cybersecure medical device, you do not have a safe medical device. And so that's the way that we approach these issues. That's the way that we encourage everyone to approach these issues. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to continue working to improve cybersecurity and safety overall in medical devices as we go. 
To learn more about health IT, subscribe to HealthCast to hear a clinical perspective to some of the most pressing issues in health IT, including electronic health record modernization, claims processing, healthcare delivery, medical devices, patient privacy, data management, and more. To learn more about cybersecurity, subscribe to CyberCast for fresh federal cybersecurity insight. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Thank you for listening. CyberCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. 